Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Amen. And let's pray before we look at this a bit more closely together. Lord God, we come before you this morning with all sorts of different memories and impressions of the year that has passed. And we come before you with all sorts of hopes and ambitions for the year that is to come. And we come before you to submit ourselves to your word and to your will in 2016. We ask that you would grant us open hearts to hear what you would have to say to us. Guide us, we pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The first slide, please. I stood right in the middle of it. Now, in September of last year, this film hit the cinemas. It's called Legend, and it stars Hollywood star Tom Hardy, playing both twins, Reggie and Ronnie Cray, the infamous London gangsters who operated during the middle of the 20th century. And the film tells the story of their colourful lives. As a disclaimer, I haven't seen the film, but I most certainly wouldn't be recommending it from what I've heard. But before the film was released to the general public, there were the usual viewings held specifically for the critics. And among a number of fairly positive reviews, there was a review by the Guardian newspaper that wasn't so good. The reviewer said this, It is a disappointingly shallow take on a fascinating period of time and leaves us sorely uninformed, as if we've skim-read a pamphlet. The legend might live on, but legend certainly won't. And to support that review, the reviewer gave the film a rating of two stars out of five, not exactly a glowing endorsement. And shortly after the critics had reviewed the film, another poster started to appear to help market the film. Next slide, please, Brian, that'd be great. Thank you. Now, there are some fairly positive reviews by some big hitters in there. There's Sky Movies, there's Empire, among others. But have a look right between the ears of Tom Hardy. I'll see if I can get right up there. You see that there? They've slotted it in. It's a two-star Guardian review. 
In a stroke of brazen genius, the marketing department tasked with selling the film decided just to embrace this rubbish review by hiding it among all the good ones. Now, I'm sure there may well be some of you who hadn't noticed that it was there until it was pointed out. I know that I certainly didn't. And it illustrates the point that sometimes, when we think we know what to expect, when we think we know what we're looking at, we can miss what's actually on the page, what's actually on the screen, what's right there in front of us. And in the passage we're looking at this morning, that's, slide off please, thank you. passage we're looking at this morning, we could find ourselves with the same problem without even knowing it. Because the beginning of Romans chapter 12 could be fairly familiar territory for some of us. At the very least, it might ring a few bells when we first glance at it. There are a couple of verses that you'll often hear quoted, and especially at this kind of time of year. Verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, you might have heard those sorts of verses before. And at a time of year when many of us are making resolutions for the coming year, if you're a Christian this morning, what better resolution to make than to resolve to offer your body as a living sacrifice to God during 2016? Or to resolve not to be conformed to the pattern of this world over the coming year. But maybe because we're familiar with the verses, we're in danger of approaching Romans 12, just like we approached that movie poster. We give it a quick glance. We think we know what the main point is. But if we do that, and if we just take these verses as a bold encouragement, let's just try a bit harder in 2016. Let's try a bit better as Christians. But we miss Paul's intended point. Because Paul makes it really clear in verse 1 that these verses aren't just a bold encouragement to be a better Christian. He says that all he's about to say, everything he's about to unpack, is underpinned, is motivated, is driven by something. And it's really important to have that context in mind. It's pivotal to have it in mind. Verse 1, I appeal to you, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, the word therefore is one we could easily skip over. But think of it more as like a staple in the page. It holds what's come before to what's about to come. And in fact, another translation is maybe more helpful in getting the thrust of Paul's argument. Verse 1, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... In other words, everything I'm about to say, everything I'm about to unpack for you, everything I'm about to encourage you to do has to be seen in light of, in view of God's mercy, in view of all that I've just spent 11 chapters telling you. Because in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has looked you and me square in the face and he has diagnosed our deepest problem. Way back in chapter 1 of Romans, he tells us this. Claiming to be wise, they, that's humanity, every one of us sat in this room this morning, became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul says that humanity and all of us in this room, instead of worshipping our maker, we worship stuff. We worship created things, whether that is material possessions whether it's our job, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whatever it happens to be, any number of different things. 
And ultimately, that's what the Bible calls sin. Sin isn't just doing the wrong thing. It's not just saying the wrong thing. At its root, it is an act of rebellion against the creator God. It's replacing our maker, the one who is due our worship, with any number of other things, with anything else, as the central focus and object of our lives. And Paul's diagnosis of that problem is, well, that we're all in the same boat. We have all sinned. And that because of that sin, there is a gap between us and God, a separation, a divide between you and your maker. But the good news, the gospel, is that God doesn't leave us. Chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We, all of us, reject God every day of our lives, whether consciously or not. We ignore the one who made us. But at the cross, the punishment that we are due for that daily act of rebellion is fully absorbed by the only man who has ever lived a life of perfect obedience, by Jesus Christ. That's the weight of these words used by Paul at the beginning of our section for this morning. Therefore, by the mercies of God. Therefore, in view of God's mercy. So before we get into what Paul would have us do in the light of that good news, I'm going to press into Romans 1 to 11 a bit more closely. Because it's quite possible that all the while I've been speaking about this mercy, you've been having an argument with me inside your head. I don't know about you, but there are a few fiercer arguments than the ones I have with people inside my head. It's maybe a very middle class thing, but it's just something we all do, isn't it? And in fact, you might be so used to having that argument whenever you hear this good news being unpacked for you that you kind of, well, you zone out a little bit. You don't really think about it anymore. But the argument goes like this. Well, Johnny, that's great. I know that I fall short of my own standards, never mind God's. And God extending grace and mercy towards me. Well, that sounds wonderful. But quite frankly, you don't know. You don't know me, not the real me. You don't know what I struggled with, what I've struggled with in 2015. And you don't know how long I'd struggled with it before that. You don't know how much I treasure money above anything else. You don't know the thoughts that I think when I'm alone. You don't know the mistakes that I've made. You don't know the people that I've hurt. You don't know the lust that I've felt and that I still feel. You don't know the anger that I have, the hatred that I feel. You don't know the insecurities that I have. Johnny, you don't know. And you're absolutely right. I have not the faintest idea. But God does. See, at the cross of Jesus, nothing is swept under the carpet. There is no blind eye turned on anything that you have done or thought or said, no rose-tinted glasses on how you behaved in 2015 or in the years before. At the cross, God looks you square in the face of that brokenness, of that weakness, failure, and sin. And he says, I love you. Not I'll love you as you will be in 10 years' time. Not I'll love you when you finally kick that habit or addiction of yours. Not I'll love you when you finally become the you that you hope and aspire to be in 2016. Just I love 
you. And the bottom line is that only at the cross of Jesus Christ are you fully known and fully loved. Fully known in your folly and your weakness and your sin, and yet you are fully loved. (coughs) And if all that sounds too good to be true, then you've heard me right. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, this is the good news of Jesus. It's the gospel and it's the most liberating thing you will ever hear. That's how Paul wants us to approach this chapter. And I'll be honest and say it's how I want us to start this new year with that good news ringing in your ears. If you're going to make any resolution this year, you might make some very good ones. But if you're going to make any Resolve to preach this good news to yourself every single day in view of God's mercy. But Paul doesn't stop there because this mercy isn't a stagnant thing. It's an active thing. It has teeth and it changes people. And as we look at the rest of our text for this morning, Paul tells us what difference that having God's mercy in view makes to our lives. He tells us, He takes what's happened through chapters 1 to 11 and he presses it in. He squeezes it into the nooks and the crannies of day-to-day living. So let's take a closer look at where he takes us. Verses 1 to 2, the person shaped by grace. So Paul's essentially saying, in light of what God has done, here's how to respond. Verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Paul says that the response of someone who has been gripped by the grace and mercy of God isn't just to submit money to God. It isn't just to submit family life to God. It isn't even just to submit 2016 to God. It's to submit everything to God, to this giver of grace. And he continues to flesh out what that looks like. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed, be changed by the renewal of your mind. The Christian is to become different from the world around them, to look, to act, to think differently from the world around us. It's not we become perfect the moment we become Christians. Far, far from it. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you'll know that all too well. But, when were, but that when we're gripped, when we're driven, when we're motivated by God's mercy to us at the cross of Jesus, we don't conform to the pattern of this world anymore. We start to change And Paul says that that change starts with a change to the way that we think, the way that we view things, the way that we view the world. The end of verse 2 says this, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I don't think he's necessarily saying we'll have better guidance from God in relation to what job to take or what person to marry or what car to buy. Maybe he is saying that. But I think the thrust of what he's saying is more that this transformation, this change that will take place in us, that it will enable us to think more like God does, to see the world the way that God sees the world, to see our problems the way that God sees our problems. Paul's saying that this salvation, this mercy, has traction, it has teeth, it changes us to look less and less like the world around us. And to look and think and act more like God. But that's great. But what does it actually look like? 
I've heard verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12 described as fridge magnet verses. They're the sorts of verses you might find written on fridge magnets and Christian calendars and coffee cups that you buy in, you used to buy in Wesley Owen or other Christian bookshops. If you're American, you might even find them on bumper stickers. They're often used as standalone verses. But we can apply them in such a broad brush way that they end up meaning very little at all. But I want you to see that Paul applies these verses in a really grounded way, a really day-to-day, nitty-gritty, church-life kind of way. Even just read what he actually says in that famous verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. Paul makes worship, which could be seen as a very hard to define, a very spiritual, a very ethereal thing, into a very physical, very earthy, very day-to-day type thing. Offer your bodies doesn't get much more physical than that. And it gets down to brass tacks in the next verses, which we'll look at under our next heading on your service sheet. Verses 3 to 6, belonging to a people shaped by grace. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, I want to ask you a question. If I were to ask you how you would determine whether you are growing in your faith, whether you're maturing as a Christian, how do you tend to do that? If you were to look back on your Christian walk through 2015, rightly or wrongly, what sorts of things would you tend to use as litmus tests, as benchmarks of whether you've grown and matured as a Christian in the year that's gone by. I'm maybe generalizing a bit, and forgive me if that's the case, but I suspect in a church like ours, in a church like Chalmers, a lot of us would ask ourselves a couple of questions. One, how regularly did I read my Bible? And two, how often did I pray? And it becomes most obvious at this time of year when we start making those New Year's resolutions. Some resolve to go to the gym, some resolve to eat more healthily, But if you're a Christian, you might well have resolved to read the Bible more regularly, to pray more regularly. And I'd be the first to encourage that. I found this through previous years to be a really great time of year to set new patterns and routines. But I want you to notice something in our text that might come as a bit of a surprise. Because the area of Paul that says is to be transformed by the grace of God isn't first our prayer life. It isn't how Bible readings are going. It isn't how spiritual we feel. But it's how we deal with other Christians. Read verse 3 with me. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul says not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Why does he say that? Well, perhaps because the church in Rome, who Paul was writing to, had a tendency to do just that. And elsewhere in Romans, we get hints of the fact that that kind of behavior was causing divisions in church families in Rome. But for us... If we're able to boil the whole of our Christian walk down to simply how often I read the Bible, how often I pray, then for many of us, faith can become a very me-centered thing. 
something we do in private. But for Paul, well, Paul paints the picture of the church, of God's people being like a human body with many parts. He's trying to show the interconnectedness of Christians, that in Paul's words, we are members of one another, or maybe more bluntly put, we belong to each other. You belong to each other. How does that make you feel? How much does it rub against the grain with you? Because I know that at points, it rubs against the grain with me. As a Christian, you might be happy to submit yourself to the God of the universe. But Paul says that because you belong to God, because you're pursuing him, because you want to know him more, you belong to each other. You've been brought into a community of followers of Jesus who are all so closely connected to each other. You're like limbs of the same body. Now, what practical implications does that have? Well, firstly, it changes the notion that my Christian walk is a one-person job. That so long as I get around good patterns of reading my Bible and that I pray in the mornings, maybe I listen to sermons from time to time, well, I'm going on fine with my faith, just thank you very much. Now, it's clear from elsewhere in the Bible that Paul is all for those things to help us grow in godliness, grow to be more like Jesus. And please don't take this as a green light to drop any of that stuff. It's far, far from it. But in these verses, Paul points out that growing in our understanding of God's grace and mercy, growing in maturity as Christians, isn't just a case of mastering spiritual disciplines. A huge part of it is how we deal with each other, how we love each other. So perhaps we come along to a service on a Sunday and the band strike up the first note of that final song as the closing prayer finishes and we're out the door. Or maybe we do stick around for a while, but conversations, well, they're pretty skin deep. We talk about how crazy the weather's been. We talk about how we got on at the golf this week or what our plans are for the following few days. Maybe you would come into Chalmers on Sundays for a long while and you've never really bothered with something like house groups because, well, to be honest, it feels like a bit of an optional extra. Why should I bother giving up an evening each week to study the Bible with other Christians? I see them all on a Sunday. Surely that's enough. Well, Paul says that you belong to God and because you do, you belong to each other. That's the first application of this transformation that Paul's talking about. We change how we think about each other, about how we fit into church. But being part of church doesn't mean that we're all robots. It doesn't mean that we're all the same. We'll see that in our final point this morning. Verses 6 to 8, using gifts given by grace. Now, you might have noticed that at the tail end of our section for this morning, Paul gives us a list of a number of different gifts that people might have within the church. Serving and teaching and prophecy and giving and encouraging. And I've seen these verses used as a bit of a launch pad for some teaching about what these sorts of gifts look like. But I don't think Paul's actually that concerned with the mechanics of prophecy or teaching or encouraging in this passage. Because remember what he's just been talking about. He's been talking about how to view yourself as part of God's church, as part of God's body. And as he moves on, he doesn't change tack. Verse 6 Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. 
And then he carries on, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, if it is exhorting, let me guess, in his exhortation. Paul isn't trying to teach us what each of these gifts are, what prophecy is, what giving is. He's trying to teach us how to use those gifts as part of God's church. And the point he's making is a really, really simple one. Whatever your gift is, use it. That's it. Whatever your gift is, use it. He presses the point home, verse 8. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul says that as a Christian, you are part of God's church, God's family. And as part of God's church, use your gifts and use them well. If your gift's giving, if you're financially able, be really generous in the way you give. If it's leadership, then be intentional about leading. Do it well. If it's acts of mercy, do it cheerfully. Use the gift you've been given, says Paul, and use it well. Now, maybe as I've been talking this morning, you've been really struggling to see yourself as part of God's church, God's family. Lots of us have different hang-ups about church And some of us have had bad experiences in the past, and I fully appreciate that. But I want you to see that Paul is encouraging us to use our gifts as a way of getting our heads around that idea. Whether it means setting up on a Sunday morning or packing up on a Sunday evening, whether it means playing in the band or youth work or creche or sound and visual stuff, whether it means discipling less mature Christians, just meeting up with someone once every couple of weeks for a coffee and to read and pray with them. Whatever area you think you're gifted in, do it and do it well. Now, if you're really struggling to know where to start, speak to Robin, speak to Andy, speak to the elders, ask them for pointers. Where can I get involved? Offering your life as a living sacrifice isn't vague. It isn't a platitude. It isn't a fridge magnet verse. It's nuts and bolts Christian living. It means realizing that as Christians, we belong to God. And that because we belong to God, we belong to each other. So as we close, let's remember that all of this has to be done in view of God's mercy. If you remember nothing else of what I said this morning, and after a very restful week or two, that could well be the case for some of you. Remember these words, in view of God's mercy. Mercy that is seen in so clearly in him sending his son Jesus, who by his blood has bought us and has brought us into this family that he calls church. Let's pray to him now. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it presses itself in on every area of our lives, on every area of our hearts. We thank you that it exposes where we reject you and rebel against you. And Lord, we thank you that for where it exposes that rejection and that rebellion, that it also shows us your great mercy towards us. Lord, as we start out this new year, help each of us here this morning to be gripped by the grace and mercy of God, of our Savior Jesus at the cross. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.